Lord Jesus? What about a new heart? As you have provided for that work around your house here, would you also provide for a new heart today? And maybe you want to touch some of our hearts to go out and, and share Jesus with somebody or to start a small group or a grow group. Maybe there's a word today from the study of your word that you want to, you want to touch a heart with. And, and so here we are. Do your thing in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'm going to put a picture on the screen for you. Ask you what you see. Now, I know what you see on the right. Yeah, uh, that's me. What do you see now on my right to the left as you view the picture? All right. Good. You got it. You say, that's, that's, that's sweet Melanie. That's dear, sweet Melanie. Oh, you're right. Come Christmas time, that dear sweet Melanie gave me a gift. And I, a boy at Christmas, tore into it. Let me put you on the screen what I found when the wrapping paper was off the box. Dear sweet Melanie bought me a bicycle seatbelt. I have the box right here. Says it's speed tested up to 48 miles an hour. Riders up to 400 pounds. Fair enough. On the back, put a picture of it on the back there. It's, uh, it protects yourself from the three most common causes of bike accidents, automobiles, ravines, and wheelies. Apparently that's the problem. The, 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 tag, the tagline here is remain seated, remain calm. It's just it puts your mind at ease when you have a seatbelt on your bicycle. Dear sweet Melanie, Got me that. Of course, opening the box, bright yellow words greet you with prank you. Prank you. Dear sweet Melanie, an empty box. <laughs> Dear sweet Melanie, maybe that's what you saw in that picture. After Christmas, that's not what I see at that picture. A little ornery. Dear sweet Melanie, what? That was my... Gift for Christmas. Empty box advertising a bicycle seatbelt. What about your what about your worst gift? What's what's been the worst gift you've gotten? I did a survey online, discovered some of the worst gifts received. One uh, one, one disappointed person wrote in that they once received a clock. <clears throat> Good. With a gigantic moose on it. The person says, I hated the woodsy theme. And the worst part is every hour the moose makes a loud groan for 60 seconds. There's no way to shut it off. My mother-in-law who bought it, she watches my kids every day at the house. And so I can't put it away. And every time the moose groans, she laughs and says, that's just the best gift ever. I've tried to break the moose several times without luck. Someone else wrote in and said, my aunt, my dear aunt sent me a birthday gift that included a birthday card, which included a Walmart gift card for $10 was printed on the gift card. Once at the store to redeem the card, 
I discovered it had a remaining balance of 53 cents. My mother, another said, my mother gave me a book for Christmas that I had given her for her birthday the year before. She acted as though she had purchased it especially for me. The note that I had written on the inside of the front cover was still there. My parents, <laughs> this is a 12-year-old boy, poor guy. My parents would give me groceries, boxes of cereal, bags of chips, and that sort of thing. After I unwrapped them, we put them away in the cupboard. And finally, another slightly disappointed husband said, my wife got me a trash can for Christmas. The same year I got her an iPhone 10 for Christmas. Worst gift. Maybe you've got one that sticks out in your mind. But this is not one of those. This is not one of those. Gifts are just gifts, but they still say a lot. Gifts communicate. Gifts say something. And so when it comes to the New Testament and the New Testament writers begin to talk of the gifts God gives his people, the gifts God gives the church, we call them spiritual gifts. We take a little note because you don't play around with the word gift. A gift says something. Even though it's free, it still says something. Dear sweet Melanie. First Corinthians 12, Romans chapter 12, and Ephesians chapter 4. The three primary places that make the list of, of gifts God has given his people. He's given you and given me. These are the gifts God is giving to bless us, to encourage us, to give us success, and to prosper us. Interestingly enough, of those primary lists, those three places, prophecy is only one of two that is repeated in every single one giving some the conclusion that there's some sort of of consistent emphasis put on the gift of prophets, the gift of prophecy. The spiritual gift of prophecy is in every one of those lists. And the Bible gives it a definition. John the Revelator, pulling out in Revelation 19, verse 10, speaking of the gift of prophets, says, this is the New Living Translation, the essence of prophecy is to give clear witness of Jesus. Maybe that's why it's repeated in every one of those gifts. It's to give a clear picture, a witness of Jesus, who he is, what he's done, and what he can do. That's the gift of prophecy. Peter also speaks of this gift of prophecy. And he says, listen, it is is as if one that receives that gift would speak the oracles of God. Translated in the New Living Translation, oracles of God is speak as if God were speaking through you. That is to say, the, the work of the prophet is to speak the oracles of God, to speak what God speaks to them. They are the mailmen. 
They're not an expositor, a commentator. They are the deliverer. They take the message, the heart, the passion, the feelings, the pathos of God, and they deliver it to us. That's their role. It's unfortunate that we become so worked up and angry with what the prophets have said throughout history. God's people have become angry with the prophets when all they were doing was taking what they had been told and what they had seen and sharing it with us. Prophecy, that is, is hearing from God and repeating it to others. It's that simple. That's the gift of prophets. God says, I want to speak to you. I want to give you my heart. I want you to hear from me. I want to give you that gift. I'm going to give you prophets. So we can hear God's voice. What we've always asked for, we've always had, but we've ignored. Prophecy is the only gift directly and specifically tied to the purpose of giving us a picture of Jesus. Revelation 19 verse 10. It's meant to give us Jesus. No wonder Jehoshaphat said in our theme text, 2 Chronicles 20 and verse 20, when Jehoshaphat stood before the people, he declared to them, he said, listen, I want you, you inhabitants of Jerusalem, believe in the Lord your God and you shall be established. Believe his prophets. It's on the screen here. Believe his prophets and you will prosper. Why? Because the prophets were just taking a picture, the testimony of Jesus, who he is and what he can do, and delivering it to us with his heart. They paint the picture. That's their role. Now, there's those who who are meant to teach, to unpack the words of God, but that's a different gift altogether. The gift of the prophets were meant to take the word of God and the motions of God and communicate them. Could it be that it's the best gift God could give? So that we could hear his voice and hear his heart? Oh, they're much, much more, much different than just mere authors of books. They are the conduits in which God shares his innermost feelings. I will do nothing, he declares, except I share it with my servants, the prophets. They will have access to my heart, to the inner workings of heaven. That's the call and the gift of the prophet. This December, in between semesters and while I was traveling, I gathered up four books Voice of the Prophet by A.W. Tozer. Powerful book. If you're looking for just, I say, read it, read it. Prophetic Imagination by Walter Brueggemann. I've read that before. I read it again. It's worth the read. The Prophets by Abraham Hetchel, the, the late Jewish scholar. Uh, read it again. It's a larger book, so you have to be committed to get, get through that. And then finally, I read Rami Shapiro's work, The Hebrew Prophets. I read through them, each with a, a, a paper. I just take a piece of paper. I do this for all of the books I'm reading. I take a piece of paper, fold it in half, stick it in there. And while I'm reading, I take notes, sometimes take notes on the inside of the, or the, or the, the inside of the front or the back cover of the book as well. But for these four, I just stuck a piece of paper in them. And as I read through it, I took notes. What, what is it 
that makes a prophet. Who is a prophet? What is a word picture of a prophet? And, and when I, I gathered those then four pieces of paper, lined them up on my desk, t- typed them out into a, a single list. Just read some of those for you. What is a prophet? What do they do? What, how would you, how, what, what kind of word art would you do to, to, to describe a prophet? What is a prophet? They present us with a choice. They present a choice. That's their job. God's word brings us to a choice. They speak to us. They're not just making general proclamations. They're speaking to us. It's God's word to us. They challenge us against staying put. They call for justice, both for God and for humanity. Some of us are so concerned with justice for humanity, we forget justice for God or justice for God, and we forget about justice for humanity. They hold a mirror to the foolishness that we hold. They are compelled inside with a burning of the fire of God. They are sent to those who choose not to hear. They're they're sent to the hard-headed. They're an emissary of God and godliness. They sound a warning from heaven. They feel deeply because God feels deeply. They are suspended between God and man. That's their job. Their, Their essential task is to declare the word of God to us. They're an iconoclast. That is that they, they rebel against tradition and establishment that is there just for the sake of tradition and establishment. They make invisible the voice of God. They make an invisible God audible. They proclaim what happens to God as well as what happens to people. They demonstrate the care of God. They see the big picture. They see heaven's perspective. They call us to trust God in the darkness. They know the emotions, the sorrow, the anger of God. They have regular and direct confrontation with what is established, what we hold on to. They lead social concern. They are signed by God to nurture, nourish, and evoke. They are called to cry out against the wrong. They they energize us towards the future. They bring the passion and the heart of God. They bring public expression to the voice of God. They cut through the deception and the numbness. They know what time it is. God has shared with them where we are in world's history. They offer hope against a culture of despair, and they make singing possible again. Those are all little clues that are embedded throughout the Bible on prophets. What is a prophet? I made the list, and it's clear that a prophet comes into existence when God calls a human being to be his direct mouthpiece. Not an expositor, not a commentator, but a direct translator. They receive the heart and the word of God, sorry, and they take that, and, and their task is to translate it. Like a translator of a language, when you When you're in a foreign country and you're speaking a language and you need a translator, that's their job. Their job is not to embellish, not to diminish, but to take what you said and to make it hearable to the audience. And that's what a prophet is. He takes what God has has shared with him, the heart and the mind of God, God, and then he translates that for the local community that he's a part of. This is critical. I need you to catch this. The authority of a prophet is from heaven. 
It's not that prophets choose to be prophets. Hey, God, I'll sign up for the prophet. It's not like signing up for a grow group. They don't choose. God chooses them. And their job then is to speak on God's behalf. Most prophets speak to the community of God, to the church. Now, there's prophets like Jonah or, or Noah that spoke to a wider group community, but most prophets, they're the exception, most prophets speak to the community of God. That is, we're the target for which God is communicating to. Apparently, we're the ones that need the translators. We're the ones the prophet was sent to. But of all the different descriptors of what a prophet is, of all the the different lines that I read, probably my favorite came from Walter Brueggemann in his work, The Prophetic Imagination. I want to put his words on the screen. Because what he's sharing, oh, is a difficult task, but it is so exciting. The task of prophetic ministry is to nurture, nourish, and evoke consciousness and perception of what? Of alternative, an alternative to the consciousness and perception of the dominant culture around us. That is, they are to take heaven's perspective and somehow get that through our thick heads so that we are not, we don't see the world as as the world convinces us to see it, as we are told to see it, as the news tries to convince us. We see reality as heaven sees it. That's a tough tough challenge. The task, keep reading, the task of prophetic imagination is to cut through the numbness, to penetrate the self-deception. That is the prophet's role, is to get through my thick head what God is, is, is about and who God is and my self-deception. The problem with self-deception and through numbness, it, it, through de- deception, is, is that I don't know I'm deceived. I think I've got the best perspective. Finish reading. His, the prophet's passion, is the passion of God of this God who knows that it is end time. Meaning there, are, there is an urgency in the prophet's voice because he's heard from God the timeline of earth's history and he's heard the heart of God to, to be reconciled with his people. And so he's got a passion that comes directly from God. And so he spills it out. But some of us, some of us don't hear real well our self-deception One of, our, one of our delights as a family the last couple of winters has been to go skiing. Well, you've got the, the coat and the gloves and, and the helmet, and then you've got the goggles. And without fail, this, this winter so far, Micah, whose goggles have an orange tint to them, he gets them on and he skis for hours, and eventually the, come the, the moment to to help him off. And I, I, inevitably, I help him. He's got these gloves on. And so I, I help lift his goggles up back onto his helmet. And he says the same thing every time. <gasps> the world is blue. Because for hours, he's, his world's been orange. And that's become a reality. That's become real to him. And then, and then you lift those goggles in the moment. He, 
The world is so blue. The trick of deception is that you think you understand what the world looks like. You think you have a good grasp of what is really right and wrong. But a lot like a hallucination, you don't know that you, what you see is really not there. That's the prophet's work, to bring heaven's perspective, the, the ultimate perspective, the ultimate reality, a philosopher would say, and communicate that to our self-deceived Deceived, numb minds. It's not easy. With all of these questions about what a prophet is and, and, and how we relate to them, the Jewish scholar Abraham Hetchel, in his book, The Prophets, says there is a question that supersedes those questions that's more vital than that. And he, I'll put it on the screen for you, says, What the question is, what does the prophet mean to God? All other questions are absurd unless the one question is meaningful. Unless we understand what the prophet means to God, all the other questions about what the prophet would mean to me or what what importance prophets have to me is irrelevant. They're absurd, he says. And that's where we have to understand the prophets, the gift of prophets is that they take a direct heart and mind of God. They take the words and the feelings of God, and their job is simply to translate them to us. They're not teachers, necessarily. It can be also that gift. But their role is to take the word of God. That is, their authority is from heaven. What does the prophet mean to God? That's his mouthpiece. You take away his mouthpiece and, and he is not, it's, it's like the phone. You take away the phone and, you, and the message doesn't go through. What does the prophet mean to God? The prophets mean everything. He has given them his direct authority and invited them into an inner circle that no other being has access to on this planet. A circle of confidence, a circle of the the deepest feelings and the deepest thoughts of God. That prophet then takes that and tries to communicate that to a world like a fish that's never been out of water. We have a hard time. So for the next five weeks, we're going we're gonna to keep studying about these prophets. The prophet Elijah, mostly the non-writing prophets. There's Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, powerful prophets. But we're going to study the non-writing prophets. Elijah, Elisha, Miriam, Deborah, Anna, John the Baptist. Of course, that brings up a little bit of a question. Well, the prophet, can, can the prophet be a, a male man or a male woman? Both in the Old and the New Testament, male and female prophets are included. Brings up argument that's carried on for a while. Who has authority from heaven to speak to the community of God? Who come on? Who has that authority? Remember, the authority of the prophet comes straight from God. Church doesn't ordain prophets. They're one of three positions you'll you'll find yourself in. One of three conclusions. One is that God 
must only use men as authorities to the community of faith, the church. If you have that conclusion, I respect you. However, you will find your, at times you are in direct contradiction with Scripture that lays out both in the Old and the New Testament times where God used a woman to be his direct mouthpiece. His, he gave her authority to speak to the community of faith in authority. Position number two. You have concluded that God must use women as authorities to the community of faith. If you've concluded that, I respect you. But you also come into contradiction with large swaths of biblical record where there were no women that God used as authorities for his community of faith. You come into, come into the, the reality that it's by far men who God used. You also find yourself in a contradiction. A third position is that you and I have to, by our own surrender to God, allow him to choose who he assigns the task of speaking for him. We have become so consumed with telling God who he can use or who he must use. Maybe it's much less of a question than we have made it, especially since the prophets themselves aren't consumed with it. The very question that we have consumed ourselves with. I know that opens up a lot of conversation. And so, in a few weeks, I'm going to invite you to a Sabbath afternoon, time of just uh, sharing and presentation. I'll share my conclusions. You're welcome to share your questions and conclusions. We'll have a conversation. But maybe, just maybe, could it be that based on the record of Scripture, we need to be a little more careful about dictating to God who he's going to use. Paul. Paul just says, hey, Paul, would you please say something on this subject? Thank you very much. He would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 5, he said, I would like that every one of you would speak in tongues. Ah, but I'd rather you all prophesy. I'd rather everyone prophesy. It's that important. It's God's word directly to his people. And, and wouldn't you know it, Paul doesn't say so here, but Peter would speak up in just a few, a few years earlier in his sermon and say, wait a minute, as the time of the end approaches, the role and the gift of prophecy will be more and more important if possible because it started as vitally important. Can it even get more important? The beliefs of the Seventh-day Adventist Church actually state that at the end time, the gift will need to be used more than ever before to get through difficult times. Joel chapter 2, back in the Old Prophet Joel, back in the Old Testament, he says, listen, there's going to be increased activity of this gift as you get closer to the end of time. Peter, 
He just grabs Joel's words and uses them, quotes them in his sermon. First, uh, in Acts chapter 2 and verse 16, this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel, says Peter. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Who says? God says, because God is the one that appoints the prophets. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. Speaking of the final movements of earth's history, God says, I will raise up a movement of prophecy. Thank you, Joel. Thank you, Peter. But it just wasn't the two of them. Jesus, we heard it from his own mouth. In Matthew chapter 24. You got that chapter? Matthew 24. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 3. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Psh, Jesus, psh, tell us. Wait a minute. Tell us. Tell us. They said, what will, what, when will these hap- things happen? What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? We've got to know what's going to be. Jesus is taking this destruction of Jerusalem and applying it to the, the end of the world, the destruction of the world. And, and so Jesus is sitting there and, and they come to him. Psh, Jesus, we, don't, uh, we, we just want to be clear. We know exactly what's going to happen. Jesus' first response to them was not a timeline of when there's wars, when there's a famine, when there's a pestilence, when there's a pandemic. That wasn't his first response. He said, Jesus, I've got, Jesus said, I've got to get this through to you. This is the most important. What's the very first thing that Jesus said to him? Verse 4, I'm warning you, watch out that no one deceives you. Well, who does the deceiving? Over and over. In fact, it's the only thing that Jesus repeats as much as he does in Matthew 24. Speaking of the end times, he repeats this idea of deception and false prophets more than anything else. It seemed to be, it was not only the first thing that he said, but it's the thing he said the most. In Matthew 24, it seems to be heaviest on his mind. And don't, by the way, disabuse yourself of this notion that that deception, false prophets, looks a lot like somebody telling you to move to a desert place, to Waco, or, or, or some faraway Central America jungle. No, it's not like that. Come on. The devil wouldn't be good at his job if his job was to get us all out in some strange place, in some strange compound with an elderly, white bearded man. That's not how it works. Say, Jesus says this, this deception is going to be so intense. He repeats it in verse 10 and verse 11 of Matthew 24. At that time, many will turn away from the faith. They've been holding on until the very end and it gets intense and it gets difficult and then they let go. Why do they let go? Verse 11, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many. That's where the deception is coming from, false prophets. This was heaviest on the heart of Jesus when he thought about the end of the world and the second coming. And then in verse 24, he repeats it again, for false messiahs and false prophets will appear, jumping to the end, to deceive, if possible, even the very chosen, the very elect. He's not playing around with this, beloved. This is life and death for Jesus. He knows that he will lose some to deception. That's the problem with deception is you don't know you're deceived. You think you're right. 
You think you've got a good grasp of what is right and wrong, but you've been following off. It's not Waco that will be our greatest problem. A.W. Tozer, in that book I recommended to you earlier, The Voice of the Prophet, he writes, wait a minute, you want to know about false prophets? One other aspect is, is he's writing in a list of several aspects of a false prophet. One other aspect of the false prophet is that he overwhelms God's people with trivia. We begin to focus and consume ourselves with things that are not of salvific or vital importance. We become confused, divided, discombobulated, and discouraged about the community of faith because of our consumption with trivia. Now you say, no, 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 I, I, I'm not, that's not me. I'm, I, am, I am steadfast. I've been waiting 20 years to be able to say what I'm going to say to you today. Ha. For 20 years I've been a pastor, and I've seen it for two decades. By the way, that's the only advantage of getting old is that you can start to say things like that. So I'm going to take it. For two decades, I have pastored. And it's been consistent. We are consumed with the trivia. There is, let me just, I'm just, I'm not going to even say it and you're going to have to fill in the blank, but you're going to fill in the blank and it's, 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 you're going you're to know what I'm talking about. This afternoon, I could announce to you, hey, we're going to have a, we're going to have a, a discussion. We're going to have a vote. We're going to have a presentation on, 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 on how to keep the Sabbath. And some of us, a few of us will be there. A respectable amount, we would say. Enough to have a good conversation. But if we said this afternoon, today, we will have a discussion, a vote, a presentation on fill in the blank, a divisive issue in the church today, where people will be on both sides of the issue in heaven, and we would fill any room in this church. Tell me, Tell me, we're not distracted with trivia. You kid yourself. And the reason we're distracted is because we are not consumed. We are not brainwashed, and I use that in, in a, in not in the pejorative. We have not consumed our minds and educated our minds with the themes of the prophets. And so we are easily distracted with the false prophets, the trivia. There are subjects that we have spent more time and more energy on as a church that the prophets of Scripture don't even wrestle with because they keep the center thing the center thing. Oh, beloved, all I'm calling for is self-examination of what we have been giving our attention because false prophets are not compounds in Waco, Texas. They are subtle invitations to give more attention to something that is divisive or not true than what are the most important, life-changing, eternal-making differences. Take it from A.W. Tozer, nothing else. Noah, the great preacher, is a good example 
Because his is the example of what is needed right before God destroys all that is wrong. He has to draw a line. God has to draw the line somewhere. And he's drawn it way further than any other person or being probably would have. We would have all cut it off a long time ago. God, they're going to do that to you. They're going to act like that. Cut it off. But God has been more gracious, more long-suffering than any other being in the universe. But there comes a point where he says, for the sake of those who are faithful and righteous, I have to cut it off. And so Noah becomes the good example as he sends a prophet preaching. And what people did with Noah's message had eternal consequences. What you do with the message of the prophets, either in Scripture or that are supported by Scripture, will have eternal consequences. Noah, the prophets, are still crying out with appeals from heaven. I want to tell you a story, and then I'm going to appeal to you. So worship leaders, come forward. It's the story of Cheryl Hicks. Cheryl Hicks lived in Edwardsburg, Michigan. That's that's a stone's throw down the road from Bering Springs, Michigan, where Andrews University is. Edwardsburg, it's a small community, so everybody knows everybody, really. Uh, this young woman met and married the love of her life. We don't know all the story behind it, but something troubled him. And at one point, her husband took his life. Devastating to her. But through the numbing grief and shock, Cheryl resolved to go on surviving. And in the process of picking up the pieces, she determined that she would help others by forming an organization of care and grief support. And so today we have the Michiana survivors of suicide that Cheryl started. It grew and flourished as she led the way to reach out to others and to care for others. That's the way she lived her life. A story is told of her one, uh, from one person who in Edwardsburg there had seen her. Uh, a river nearby there, Cheryl approached a stranger, a woman who was fishing, and began a conversation with this woman, only to find out the woman was fishing for her next meal. She was trying to find something to eat. Cheryl emptied her pockets for the woman to go get something to eat. They said that's how she was. She would approach people, just find out what they needed. She loved everyone, and everyone loved her. Eventually, she met uh, Roger, married Roger. Three years later, they had a son born, Tyler. And that was where tragedy turned triumph, turned back to tragedy. One day, Cheryl was in the post office, the village post office with Tyler. And she met a neighbor, Donna, after they'd done their business, and they chatted with Donna about how things are going, and Cheryl was very interested to find out how Donna was doing. Donna recalls all of this. And she says, as Cheryl and Tyler slipped out the front the door of the post office, Cheryl called out over her shoulder, see you later, and waved. Seconds later, now down the steps on the sidewalk in front of the post office, a drunk driver 
in a pickup truck, careened out of control up onto the sidewalk. Clutching her toddler, Cheryl instantly made her decision, throwing her arms up, lifting Tyler high above her head. The pickup slammed into her petite body, killing her instantly. Little Tyler didn't have a scratch. Why? Why didn't he have a scratch? Because his mother died protecting him. That's a simple explanation of the story of heaven. Heaven emptied itself, died protecting you, died protecting me. It's that same heaven that has sent us prophet after prophet to communicate the passion and the heart and the mind and the words of God. Who's the sender? Who's the sender of these prophets, we could ask? It's that, the one who would rather die so that we could live is now sending us his heart and his mind. And we struggle to give it any attention. So here's the challenge. Here's my appeal. It's the same appeal last week, except instead of six weeks, would you give the next five weeks, would you give the next five weeks to disengaging with the media, with the entertainment, the doom scrolling of conversations that are really, while true, are gossip. Would you spend the next five weeks disengaging from those and giving that same time to an exposure of the prophets, both the biblical and the ones that are supported biblically? Would you give your attention to the messages that are coming from heaven, the the same place that rather emptied itself so you could live. The story of Cheryl is the story of God. And he's sending you a reality, an ultimate reality. It will conflict with the reality that we now live in. It will conflict with the with the issues we have taken stands on. It will conflict with how we've spent our time and what we've decided to do. But it will bring you a revelation like little Micah on the ski slope. (gasps) The world is so bright. The next five weeks, would you do it? To hear from the very heaven who emptied itself for you. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.